So last week we began the Gospel of John in the first chapter. And you know, the first chapter is filled with a couple of different uh, uh, items. In the first chapter, we have some of the most incredible theological language. And we looked at it last week. Remember, we talked about the Gospel of John being a much more theologically written gospel and for a very practical reason. The Gospel of John was written 30 to 40 years after all the other Gospels that were written uh, right around 60 AD or AD 60. John was the only apostle not to be martyred, so he lived a lot longer as an apostle in the church, seeing both the birth of the church, the spread of the church, but also the church was constantly getting revelation by the Holy Spirit of how to explain the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And because of who Jesus Christ is, what does salvation mean? Because of what salvation means and who Jesus Christ is, what's our identity? What is this that we've inherited as Christians? And we talked about defining theology in this way. Theology, remember we said, it's not about the tickling of the mind or the ear. It's not about growing in the intellect alone. Theology is not an intellectual adventure alone. Theology is the absolute revelation of God to man. And man trying to catch up in words how to describe that revelation. In other words, all theology is based on the experience of a living Holy Trinity. And this would grow in the church. And because of false teachings that even Jesus would warn His people against, and the apostles in their epistles would warn against false teachings, being able to express the truth when false was presented became incredibly important right from the get-go. And if you remember last week, what we started off with was this incredible statement. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, two persons. You can't be with someone unless there's more than one. Two persons. And the Word what? was God. Two persons, yet one God. And then we looked at the Scripture, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that word dwelt. You're going to like this. You know what it it really means in the Greek? He pitched His tent with us. And the Word became flesh and literally came. And became not only became one of us, but lived as one of us, dwelled with us. And why did He come? To show forth the Father. To bring the kingdom of God to earth and to reunite man to God because of that horrific separation that occurred in the fall. So one of the questions that came up, and I'm going to go through this briefly because we got plenty to cover today in the end of chapter 1 and and look at chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. Excuse me. Um, We talked about one of the early false teachings... Nestorianism. And if you remember, I've got on the board the orthodox formula for understanding Jesus as He became, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Nestorianism was a little bit different. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but remember what Nestorius said is in Jesus Christ were two persons. Up here you would have divine person, human person. Which means divine nature up here, human nature down here. 
divine will up here, human will down here. And Nestorianism grew and grew and grew. And it, wanted, it caused one of the councils, the Council of Ephesus, to take place. Where they would take a look at what was spreading all throughout the church. To discern, was that truth? Or the way that we express things all the way from the beginning, which is the truth? The problem with Nestorianism, if you remember I said in Jesus is two persons. And if you look at them linearly, they're never joined. Which is why Nestorius, who was a bishop at that time, Nestorius says it's improper for the church to keep calling Mary Theotokos, meaning Mother of God. Because Jesus, what she bore, was Christ the human. Therefore, we must call her Christotokos, the bearer of Christ. And that was a new thought. Why was it that Nestorius had to go there? Because he believed that in Jesus Christ, the divine and the human never met. And here was his rationale. Remember that rationale that we talked about last time? It was of that old thought that nothing of the unholy and holy can be joined. So even in Christ, there has to be two persons. St. Cyril of Alexandria, the Council of Ephesus, as well as all of them that were there, threw down the heresy of Nestorianism and gave us this. In Jesus Christ, there is one person. And that person has joined to His divinity completely to our humanity. So we have a divine and human nature joined where there's no separation. Therefore, in Jesus Christ, the divine and the human will are also joined. You see, with Nestorianism, what St. Cyril of Alexandria said and what they all agreed upon is if the two persons of Jesus Christ that Nestorius was presenting are forever separate, they've never been joined, then humanity can't be saved. Because remember that statement the church makes, whatever cannot be, has not been assumed in Christ, that is, divinity joined to humanity, we have no hope. We're still in the same place before Christ came. So we talked about the importance of theology. I keep this up there because we're going to see more of this today. By the way, we also at the very end last week, and this is where we'll begin today, recognized that if Jesus was the, first, was the second Adam and in Him was this, divine and human joined, we're told He's the first of us. What's our identity? By our baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit. We have now been joined to the divinity within ourselves, just as Christ was. <coughs> this is how we're saved. This is how we're saved. Okay? So, we're going to start today by, I'm going to read just three verses, or excuse me, four verses of John chapter 1, and then we're going to look at Christ's first miracle at Cana. Now, I've given you that verse, the first section, John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I'll read this to you. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them gave He, and this is a poor translation, forgive me, I'll give you the right one, you hear it every Sunday. To them He gave power to become the children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Alright, verse 10 says this. 
Jesus in whom, remember, was the fullness of God and the fullness of all of our humanity. Jesus was in the world. And then it says the very same world that was made through that very same person. He came into the world. Humanity joined to divinity. He stepped into the very world that He had created and that had fallen to redeem it and rescue it. I want to read to you the teaching of St. Bede. I'm going to read you a number of teachings of the fathers this morning. St. Bede was was a Benedictine monastic in the late 7th century, so the 600s. Okay, Here's what he said. He said, The eternal Son of God who was in the world and through whom the world was made, has come for a time into the world for no other reason but our salvation. That is, that we might see and come to know the true God, for no one was able to come to life without knowing the divinity. Take a breath for a moment and consider the words that you just heard. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. He came into the world which He created. And St. Bede says for only one reason did He do this. Love for you. The love of mankind. To reunite within Himself this, the divine and the human. I wish we could be silent for 15 minutes and consider that truth. That Christ became everything needed. Stepped into a fallen world to experience its fallenness for one reason only, the love of you. So that through Him, this same Word made flesh, So that through Him you may be joined to God. And by being joined to God, therefore, you might be saved. John continues in that verse as we read. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him. To them gave He power to become the children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So He came unto His own. Let me ask you a question. Who is His own? Not a trick question. First and foremost, the Hebrews. Who were God's people at that time? Considered His own. The ones that were established in the Old Covenant. Of course, we also know that that's not the extent of His own. He came for the Gentiles as well. He came for the Gentiles as well. And it says, But as many as received Him, Jews or Gentiles, as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become children of God. I want to read to you St. John Chrysostom on to whom he gave the power to become the sons of God. St. John Chrysostom teaches. Why then did he not say he made them sons of God? Because that's not what the word says. It says he gave them power to become sons of God. 
St. John writes, Why then did He not say He made them sons of God? Instead, He gave them power to become sons of God. He did so to show how much zeal is needed to keep the image of sonship that was impressed on us at baptism and to keep away all that which would spot or spoil us. At the same time, He also wanted to show that no one will be able to take this power from us unless we give it away. Unless we give it away. For even in these mystical blessings, it is on the one hand God's part to give the grace. On the other hand, a person's to supply the faith. That is the cooperation with the grace of God. What follows needs such pers- much perseverance. In order to persevere our purity, it is not sufficient for us merely to have been baptized and believed. We must display a life worthy of what we have been given. And this occurs only by the grace of God. Then we are becoming the sons and daughters of God. It is the difference between salvation being a covenant contract and salvation being a covenant relationship. Some would like to believe that when we are baptized... That God signs us into His covenant, poof, that's it. You have punched your ticket to eternity with Him. No, truly. Truly. That's a, that is prob- it is a very prevalent teaching out there. And it matches nothing what any of the fathers said for the first millennium. You just heard from St. John Chrysostom. And I could quote many others that our relationship is wrapped up, I mean, our salvation is wrapped up in relationship, not a momentary decision, but an eternal remaining. My wife and I have been married for 26 years, been together for 29. We're not still married today because on that day we received a marriage certificate and that was it. And we no longer had to remain with one another. And live for one another. And offer ourselves to no relationship in that. God has offered us so much more than a contract. God has offered us His entire self in marriage. We'll see that in chapter 2. At the wedding in Cana. We need to get this. And when I say that marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenantal relationship... I always like to be clear because there are a lot of people that swing the pendulum saying, okay, if it's not a contract and at my baptism the deal was done, no matter what I do, no matter what life I live, whether I ever remain in Him or not, they go immediately to the pendulum swing is, oh, I have to fear every moment that I'm going to be sent to hell. That is not the case. That's a pendulum swing. I'm going to tell you right now that for all of you who remain in Christ... For all of you that are continuing to grow, not there yet, but are continuing to grow in a life of repentance and a life of experiencing union with Him. You may be right here right now, but if you continue in it, there's no fear. Because we're one with Him, and He's the one that begins and ends our salvation, but it's through relationship, not contract. That's what the fathers are teaching, and that's why St. John at the very beginning of the gospel, puts this in there. It's why the fathers comment on this 
in this manner. That He gave us at our baptism. We were given power to become sons and daughters of God. By the grace of God that only comes by remaining in Him. You remember what St. John, the same St. John said in the vine and the branches parable? If you remain in Me, that means you're already in Me. If you remain in Me, you will bear much fruit. If not, there's a very different result, he says. That's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that John had recorded. So we take notice of this. We take notice of this. Again, not for fear, but so that we might experience true union with the divine here and in the body of Christ. Hmm? All right. So... I'd like to ask for a volunteer with with at least a decently strong voice, because as you can tell, mine is kind of going down, um, to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I've printed that out. Would anybody be willing to read that? I've got it. Thank you so much. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled it up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When Jesus, the master of the feast, had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called for the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior... You have kept the good wine until now. And the beginning of the signs of Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, we're going to we're going to break this up into three parts. Okay? We're going to look at this. Cuz there I have to tell you I, I told you last week I was I was very much looking forward to talk to teaching on John. And I'm going to tell you that half of it is not for you. It was selfish for me. Because that meant I was going to have to get knee-deep in the Father's on a very theologically written gospel. And I knew what that was going to be for me. Joy. I was really going to be neat to see what they had to say. So we're going to hear a lot from them. Um, As much from them as me, and that's quite fine. In fact, you ought to hear more from them than, than, than me. But we're going to break this up. And the first thing I want to do is break it up. I want to start with the first four words of chapter 2. On the third day. Because you have to stop there. 
on the third day. And at the end it says this was the beginning of Jesus, of the signs Jesus did in Cana and manifested His glory. So the beginning of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ with manifest glory and miracles occurred on the what day? On the third day. When would His resurrection be? Keep that in mind. The finished work would be accomplished on the what day? The third day. He began on the third day. Of course, we know God's not a God of order, so we'll just move on, right? Okay, but there's a reason for this. And I want us to look at this statement on the third day. Because it is a theological statement for us, that is the revelation of God being expressed to us. Okay, And to begin this, I want to read another quote from the Fathers. St. Theodore of Heraclea. Now, St. Theodore of Heraclea was a martyred saint in A.D. 319. Again, very early on okay, in the church. And here's what he says about the third day. According to the revelation of this passage, the Word of God descended from heaven in order that the bridegroom might persuade his bride to become pregnant with the spiritual seed of wisdom. He convened the wedding on the third day, that is, in the last times of the age. For He struck the transgression that was in Adam, and again bandaged us on the third day, that is, in the last times. When becoming human for us, He took on the whole fleshly nature that He resurrected in Himself from the dead." Therefore, because of this, John mentions the third day when he consecrated the wedding. He's talking about this, the culmination of the ministry of Christ, where this God in whom Jesus Christ, the divine and the will, were together. He took it together all through life, took it into death, took our humanity, raised us from the dead with His divinity, and we know would later ascend. And take that connection, unity within Himself, and keep it for eternity. That's why Jesus Christ is the keeper of the covenant. He assumed humanity into Himself and took it with Him. He will never not be both ever again. Jesus taking on flesh in the beginning, when He was born would never again not be joined to it. That all amazes. So that we would follow suit be the same and ascend to where He is all of our days. And when we fall asleep in the Lord, ascend yet again, joined to divinity, to see the one who was the first of us. And so what's, what uh, St. Theodore is saying is, it is no surprise that on the third day, by the way, on the third day, it is the third day of something, on the third day after Jesus' baptism. So on the third day after Jesus' baptism, goes in the water to purify it and comes out, we have this first miracle. And I love what he says. When St. Theodore said, The Word of God descended from heaven in order that the bridegroom might persuade his bride to become pregnant with the spiritual seed of wisdom. What's the seed? What's the seed of God within us? Or I should say, who is the seed of God within us? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Very good. Remember what I read last week from the same apostle in his first epistle that he wrote. 
where he said, whoever has been born of God, and how are we born again? Through baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Dying to living through baptism. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. That's what the apostle says. This idea of the seed of God being born in us to take root. What does a seed do when it's watered? When there's cooperation between human and divine? What happens to the seed? Jesus told the parable of the mustard seed. You plant this tiny little seed. And if you care for it, it remains in the soil. It becomes one of the greatest trees. It blossoms, it blooms, it grows. Life. And that's what St. Theodore is talking about here. So on the third day begins Jesus' miraculous ministry through flesh and blood. And on the third day, He would finish that work. Okay. Now, let's talk about the marriage itself. The wedding at Cana. Because this is where He does this. The early church fathers speak very clearly. You remember how we talked about baptism just a couple weeks ago when we, when we looked at the icon of, of the baptism of our Lord, the icon of Theophany? We talked about the fact that Jesus didn't go into the waters because Jesus needed to be cleansed or consecrated. Jesus went into the waters because creation needed to be consecrated. Right? So He went into the waters to purify the waters for baptism for all eternity. So that when His church would come behind Him, by praying what He taught us to prayer, doing the things He taught us to do, by grace those waters would be the same for the cleansing of man, rejoining man to divinity. He says, the early church fathers say the same thing about the wedding of Cana. Okay? I want to read to you St. Maximus of Turin. Bishop, he was a bishop in the early 5th century, so in the 400s. Listen to what he says. The Son of God went to the wedding so that marriage, which had been instituted by His own authority, might be sanctified by His blessed presence. He went to a wedding of the old order when He was about to take a new bride for Himself through the conversion of the Gentiles. A bride who would forever remain a virgin. He went to a wedding even though he himself was not born of human wedlock. He went to the wedding not certainly to enjoy a banquet, but rather to make known himself by miracles. He went, I love this statement, he went to the wedding not to drink wine, but to give it. Why did Jesus' first miracle occur and what happened at the wedding of Cana? Just like when Christ went into the waters, He blessed the waters for the sacrament of baptism. His first miracle was done, and by His presence at the wedding in Canaan, so by His presence at the marriage, He would bless and set aside for all eternity the sacrament of holy matrimony. That by two being joined together, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are joined together, becoming one flesh, each might be saved by that sacrament. So then, we get into the wedding. And the Blessed Virgin Mary has an announcement for her son. We're out of wine. We have... Houston, we have a problem at a wedding banquet. Right? I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. I want us to look at this conversation and see what the fathers say about it. 
would shed some important light both on Jesus' divinity and also the need for Mary's salvation by the revelation of God in her life even at this stage. Okay? So Mary, it says that, uh, in verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, a lot of people look at this as a harsh reprimand. That's an error, especially in the language in which it's written. So we're going to look at it for what it really is. Because Jesus never failed to honor his mother. By the way, if memory serves correct about the end of this very story, he does what she says, what she had requested. He solves the problem. But let's take a look at this interaction between the Blessed Virgin Mary and her son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you from two church fathers that is going to give us a good picture of this. The first one is St. John Chrysostom. The second one is St. Augustine. St. John Chrysostom says, We know from the Gospel of St. Luke that Jesus greatly honored His mother since He tells us that Jesus was subject to His parents. For where parents throw no obstacle in the way of God's commands, it is our duty to be subject to them. I'm going to stop there for a second. You do realize that when children are called to be obedient to their parents, and let's throw this into the church in a very familial way, when children are to obey their father, when the father is to obey his father, the bishop, and so on and so forth, you don't understand that there is one caveat to that. That obedience... That call to obedience goes away if the parents demand that the child be do something unholy, immoral, outside of the order of God. You get that. And that's what St. John Chrysostom is saying. He's saying, for where parents throw no obstacle in the way of God's commands, it's our duty to be subject to them. But when they demand anything at an unseasonable time or cut us off from spiritual things, we should not be deceived into compliance. Now, St. Augustine, although the evangelist himself mentions Jesus' mother by her very name, Jesus nevertheless addresses her with the words, Woman, what have I to do with you? But here he's not pushing her away from himself since he had received flesh from her. Rather... His purpose is to convey the conception of His divinity, which is especially appropriate at this time when He's about to change water into wine. This is the divinity that made that woman the Blessed Virgin Mary rather than being made by her. What are they saying Jesus is doing? He's actually revealing Himself to His own mother as divinity. Isn't that incredible? And the idea that Mary needed Him for salvation, the church teaches. We embrace this. In fact, why did she need it? If you remember, I can't remember how many weeks ago, we had a reading from Luke chapter 2. And I'll set the stage for you. If you remember, Jesus is 12 years old, and they'd taken Him for Passover, right? And with a whole lot of people that were traveling into Jerusalem. And then they leave Jerusalem... Oh my goodness, we forgot our son, right? Jesus was left for two days travel in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old. So they hustle back and they find him in the temple, not only listening, but asking questions and answering questions with all of the greatest of the spiritual minds, right? And when they get to Jesus, 
Here's what it says. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not understand that I must be about my father's business? Now listen to the next line. But they, that is the Blessed Virgin Mary and Joseph, they did not understand the statement that he spoke to them. Even with the archangel Gabriel coming and saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, that you'll bear Emmanuel. But also, remember when she would visit her cousin Elizabeth who was impregnated with John, John would leap in the womb and Mary would leave and it said she would ponder these things in her heart. Why? Because Mary didn't have the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ because the only time the full revelation of God would come was through her son. Through his life. Through his ministry. All that he would do. How he would live. So here at the wedding of Cana, This exchange between the Blessed Virgin Mary and her dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is actually a moment where Christ reveals His divinity. That He's not bound in time and He is obedient to the Father, first and foremost, to glorify Him in all things. Okay? Does that make sense? It's an amazing look at this. Okay? Now, we're going to close with the miracle of the water being turned wine. Because our Lord honors His mother's request. He tells the servants, go and get those six clay water pots and fill them with water. Okay, And they filled them up to the brim. And they started to draw out of the water and what was it? It had been turned into wine. I'm going to read to you from St. Maximus again of Turin. And I want you to listen to what he says about the wine. And I want you to stretch it a little bit and see if you can see your identity. Okay? St. Maximus of Turin. He addresses the expectant servants. He says, fill the jars with water. The servants promptly obeyed and suddenly, in a marvelous way, the water began to acquire potency. Take on color emit fragrance, and gain flavor. All at once, it changed its nature completely. Now this transformation of the water from its own substance into another testified to the powerful presence of the Creator. Only He who made it out of nothing could change water into something whose use was quite different. I want you to see how to see yourselves in this. I don't know if you remember, I did this last Pentecost, and I think I may have done it the first Pentecost I was here five years ago, so of course you remember everything I said on that day. I gave the example of our transformation by being filled with the Holy Spirit. I gave the example of a percolating coffee machine. Remember those old can percolating coffee machines? You put the grounds... The coffee grounds in the top in a basket, the filter. You pour in colorless, odorless, tasteless, unless it's from Fort Worth, and flavorless water into at the bottom. You turn it on, what happens? Starts to bubble and bubble and boil, which makes the water shoot up and pass through the grounds. What's happening to the water every time it passes and joins itself to the grounds and comes back down? 
every time the water is being transformed. It's taking on color. It's taking on a distinct odor. It's taking on a brand new taste. In fact, when the whole process is done, its entire identity has been changed. How do we know this? Because we don't call it water anymore. What do we call it? Its name has even changed. When Jesus Christ turned water into wine, it shows what He came to do for all of creation. That by passing through, so to speak, let's call it holy grounds to be funny. Oh, come on. (laughs) So, by passing through holy grounds, by passing through, by being joined to the divinity of God, we who were colorless, odorless, tasteless, and so on, we begin to take on the absolute nature of the one we were joined to. And not only that, then we begin to express that nature. All who drank that wine experienced the changed substance. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what the fathers teach us. You see, Jesus Christ, in fact, He's fulfilling the Psalms. If you remember correctly in the Psalms, it mentions wine that makes glad the heart of men. If you think that's just an alcoholic beverage He's talking about, Jesus is the wine that makes glad the heart of men. All of this points to Himself. All of this points to who we are now in our identity, the truest identity we have. We are humans joined to the divine through Christ because of His finished work. Let's stand.